This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Don Quixote, Volume 1, by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by John Ormsby. The conclusion of Volume 1, Part 18. Chapters 51 and 52 Chapter 51 Which deals with what the goatherd told those who were carrying off Don Quixote. Three leagues from this valley there is a village which, though small, is one of the richest in all this neighborhood, and in it there lived a farmer, a very worthy man, and so much respected that, although to be so is the natural consequence of being rich, he was even more respected for his virtue than for the wealth he had acquired. But what made him still more fortunate, as he said himself, was having a daughter of such exceeding beauty, rare intelligence, gracefulness, and virtue, that every one who knew her and beheld her marveled at the extraordinary gifts with which heaven and nature had endowed her. As a child she was beautiful. She continued to grow in beauty, and at the age of sixteen she was most lovely. The fame of her beauty began to spread abroad through all the villages around. And why do I say the villages around, merely, when it spread to distant cities, and even made its way into the halls of royalty, and reached the ears of people of every class, who came from all sides to see her, as if to see something rare, and curious, or some wonder-working image. Her father watched over her, and she watched over herself, for there are no locks or guards or bolts that can protect a young girl better than her own modesty. The wealth of the father and the beauty of the daughter led many neighbors as well as strangers to seek her for a wife, but he, who well might be, who had the disposal of so rich a jewel, was perplexed and was unable to make up his mind to which of her countless suitors he should entrust her. I was one among the many who felt a desire so natural, and, as her father knew who I was, and I was of the same town, of pure blood, in the bloom of life, and very rich in possessions, I had great hopes of success. There was another of the same place and qualifications, who also sought her, and this made her father's choice hang in the balance, for he felt that on either of us his daughter would be well bestowed. So, to escape from this state of perplexity, he resolved to refer the matter to Leandra, for that is the name of the rich damsel who has reduced me to misery, reflecting that, as we were both equal, it would be best to leave it to his dear daughter, to choose according to her inclination, a course that is worthy of imitation by all fathers who wish to settle their children in life. I do not mean that they ought to leave them to make a choice of what is contemptible and bad, but that they should place before them what is good, and then allow them to make a good choice as they please. I do not know which Leander chose. I only know her father put us both off with the tender age of his daughter, 
and vague words that neither bound him nor dismissed us. My rival is called Anselmo, and I call myself Eugenio, that you may know the names of the personages that figure in this tragedy, the end of which is still in suspense, though it is plain to see it must be disastrous. About this time there arrived in our town one Vicente de la Roca, the son of a poor peasant of the same town, the said Vicente having returned from service as a soldier in Italy, and divers other parts. A captain who chanced to pass that way with his company had carried him off from our village when he was a boy of about twelve years, and now, twelve years later, the young man came back in a soldier's uniform, arrayed in a thousand colors, and all over glass trinkets and fine steel chains. Today he would appear in one gay dress, tomorrow in another, but all flimsy and gaudy, of little substance and less worth. The peasant folk, who are naturally malicious, and when they have nothing to do can be malice itself, remarked all this, and took note of his finery and jewelry, piece by piece, and discovered that he had three suits of different colors, with garters and stockings to match, but he made so many arrangements and combinations out of them, that if they had not counted them, any one would have sworn that he had made a display of more than ten suits of clothes and twenty plumes. Do not look upon all this that I am telling you about the clothes as uncalled for or spun out, for they have a great deal to do with the story. He used to seat himself on a bench under the great poplar in our plaza, and there he would keep us all hanging open-mouthed on the stories he told us of his exploits. There was no country on the face of the globe that he had not seen, nor battle he had not been engaged in. He had killed more Moors than there are in Morocco, and Tunis, and fought more single combats, according to his own account, than Garcilaso, Diego Garcia de Paredes, and a thousand others he named, and out of all he had come victorious, without losing a drop of blood. On the other hand, he showed marks of wounds, which, though they could not be made out, he said were gunshot wounds received in divers encounters and actions. Lastly, with monstrous impudence, he used to say, You, to his equals, and even those who knew what he was, and declare that his arm was his father, and his deeds his pedigree, and that, being a soldier, he was as good as the king himself. And to add to these swaggering ways, he was a trifle of a musician, and played the guitar with such a flourish that some said he made it speak. Nor did his accomplishments end here, for he was something of a poet, too, and on every trifle that had happened in the town he made a ballad a league long. This soldier, then, that I have described, this Vicente de la Roca, this bravo, gallant, musician, poet, was often seen and watched by Leandra from a window of her house which looked out on the plaza. The glitter of his showy attire took her fancy. His ballads bewitched her, for he gave away twenty copies of every one he made. 
The tales of his exploits, which he told about himself, came to her ears, and in short, as the devil no doubt had arranged it, she fell in love with him before the presumption of making love to her had suggested itself to him. And, as in love affairs, none are more easily brought to an issue than those which have the inclination of the lady for an ally, Leandra and Vicente came to an understanding without any difficulty, and before any of her numerous suitors had any suspicion of her design, she had already carried it into effect, having left the house of her dearly beloved father, for mother she had none, and disappeared from the village with the soldier, who came more triumphantly out of this enterprise than out of any of the large number he laid claim to. All the village and all who heard of it were amazed at the affair. I was aghast. Anselmo, thunderstruck, her father full of grief, her relations indignant, the authorities all in a ferment, the officers of the Brotherhood in arms. They scoured the roads, they searched the woods in all quarters, and at the end of three days they found the flighty Leandra in a mountain cave, stripped of her shift and robbed of all the money and precious jewels she had carried away from home with her. They brought her back to her unhappy father, and questioned her as to her misfortune, and she confessed without pressure that Vicente de la Roca had deceived her, and under promise of marrying her, had induced her to leave her father's house, as he meant to take her to the richest and most delightful city in the world, which was Naples, and that she, ill-advised and deluded, had believed him, and robbed her father, and handed over all to him the night she disappeared, and that he had carried her away to a rugged mountain, and shut her up in the eve where they had found her. She said, moreover, that the soldier, without robbing her of her honour, had taken from her everything she had, and made off, leaving her in the cave, a thing that still further surprised everybody. It was not easy for us to credit the young man's countenance, but she asserted it with such earnestness that it helped to console her distressed father, who thought nothing of what had been taken, since the jewel that once lost can never be recovered, had been left to his daughter. The same day that Leandra made her appearance, her father removed her from our sight, and took her away to shut her up in a convent in a town near this, in the hope that time may wear away some of the disgrace she has incurred. Leandra's youth furnished an excuse for her fault, at least to those for whom it was of no consequence whether she was good or bad. But those who knew her shrewdness and intelligence did not attribute her misdemeanor to ignorance, but to wantonness and the natural disposition of women, which is for the most part flighty and ill-regulated. Leandra, withdrawn from sight, Anselmo's eyes grew blind, or, at any rate, found nothing to look at that gave them any pleasure, and mine were in darkness without a ray of light to direct them to anything enjoyable. While Leandra was away, 
At last Anselmo and I agreed to leave the village and come to this valley, and he, feeding a great flock of sheep of his own, and I a large herd of goats of mine, we pass our life among the trees, giving vent to our sorrows, together singing the fair Leandra's praises, or upbraiding her, or else sighing alone, and to heaven pouring forth our complaints in solitude. Following our example, many more of Leandra's lovers have come to these rude mountains and adopted our mode of life, and they are so numerous that one would fancy the place had been turned into the pastoral Arcadia, so full is it of shepherds and sheepfolds, nor is there a spot in it where the name of the fair Leandra is not heard. Here one curses her, and calls her capricious, fickle, and immodest. There another condemns her as frail and frivolous. This pardons and absolves her, that spurns and reviles her. One extols her beauty, another assails her character. And, in short, all abuse her, and all adore her. And to such a pitch has this general infatuation gone, that there are some who complain of her scorn without ever having exchanged a word with her, and even some that bewail and mourn the raging fever of jealousy, for which she never gave any one cause, for, as I have already said, her misconduct was known before her passion. There is no nook among the rocks, nor brookside, no shade beneath the trees, that is not haunted by some shepherd telling his woes to the breezes. Wherever there is an echo, it repeats the name of Leandra. The mountains ring with, Leandra! Leandra! murmur the brooks. And Leandra keeps us all bewildered and bewitched, hoping without hope, and fearing without knowing what we fear. Of all this silly set, the one that shows the least, and also the most sense, is my rival Anselmo, for having so many other things to complain of, he only complains of separation, and to the accompaniment of a rebeck, which he plays admirably, he sings his complaints in verses that show his ingenuity. I follow another, easier, and to my mind wiser course, and that is to rail at the frivolity of women, at their inconstancy, their double-dealing, their broken promises, their unkept pledges, and, in short, the want of reflection they show in fixing their affections and inclinations. This, sirs, was the reason of words and expressions I made use of to this goat when I came up just now. For, as she is a female, I have contempt for her, though she is the best in all my fold. This is the story I promised to tell you, and, if I have been tedious in telling it, I will not be slow to serve you. My hut is close by, and I have fresh milk and dainty cheese there, as well as a variety of toothsome fruit, no less pleasing to the eye than to the palate. CHAPTER 52 OF THE QUARREL THAT DON QUIXOTE HAD WITH THE GOATHERD, 
together with the rare adventure of the penitents, which, with an expenditure of sweat, he brought to a happy conclusion. The goatherd's tale gave great satisfaction to all the hearers, and the canon especially enjoyed it, for he had remarked with particular attention the manner in which it had been told, which was as unlike the manner of a clownish goatherd as it was like that of a polished city wit, and he observed that the curate had been quite right in saying that the woods bred men of learning. They all offered their services to Eugenio, but he who showed himself most liberal in this way was Don Quixote, who said to him, Most assuredly, brother Goatherd, if I found myself in a position to attempt any adventure, I would this very instant set out on your behalf, and would rescue Leandra from that convent, where no doubt she is kept against her will, in spite of the abbess and all who would try to prevent me, and would place her in your hands to deal with her according to your will and pleasure, observing, however, the laws of chivalry, which lay down that no violence of any kind is to be offered to any damsel. But I trust in God, our Lord, that the might of one malignant enchanter may not prove so great, but that the power of another better disposed may prove superior to it. And then I promise you my support and assistance, as I am bound to do by my profession, which is none other than to give aid to the weak and needy. The goatherd eyed him, and noticing Don Quixote's sorry appearance and looks, he was filled with wonder, and asked the barber who was next to him, Senor, who is this man who makes such a figure and talks in such a strain? Who should it be, said the barber, but the famous Don Quixote of La Mancha, the undoer of injustice, the writer of wrongs, the protector of damsels, the terror of giants, and the winner of battles? That, said the goatherd, sounds like what one reads in the books of the knights errant, who did all that you say this man does, though it is my belief that either you are joking, or else this gentleman has empty lodgings in his head. "'You are a great scoundrel,' said Don Quixote, "'and it is you who are empty and a fool. I am fuller than ever was the horse and bitch that bore you,' and, passing from words to deeds, he caught up a loaf that was near him, and sent it full in the goatherd's face, with such force that he flattened his nose.' But the goatherd, who did not understand jokes, and found himself roughly handled in such good earnest, paying no respect to carpet, tablecloth, or diners, sprang upon Don Quixote, and seizing him by the throat with both hands, would no doubt have throttled him, had not Sancho Panza that instant come to the rescue, and grasping him by the shoulders, flung him down on the table, smashing plates, breaking glasses, and upsetting and scattering everything on it. Don Quixote, finding himself free, strove to get on top of the goatherd, who, with his face covered with blood, and soundly kicked by Sancho, was on all fours, feeling about for one of the table-knives to take a bloody revenge with. 
The canon and the curate, however, prevented him. But the barber so contrived it that he got Don Quixote under him, and rained down upon him such a shower of fisticuffs that the poor knight's face streamed with blood as freely as his own. The canon and the curate were bursting with laughter, the officers were capering with delight, and both the one and the other hissed them on as they do dogs that are worrying one another in a fight. Sancho alone was frantic, for he could not free himself from the grasp of one of the canon's servants, who kept him from going to his master's assistance. At last, while they were all, with the exception of the two bruisers, who were mauling each other, in high glee and enjoyment, they heard a trumpet sound a note so doleful that it made them all look in the direction whence the sound seemed to come. But the one that was most excited by hearing it was Don Quixote, who, though sorely against his will, he was under the goat-herd, and something more than pretty well pummeled, said to him, Brother devil, for it is impossible but that thou must be one, since thou hast had might and strength enough to overcome mine, I ask thee to agree to a truce for but one hour, for the solemn note of yonder trumpet that falls on our ears seems to me to summon me to some new adventure. The goat-herd, who was by this time tired of pummeling and being pummeled, released him at once, and Don Quixote, rising to his feet, and turning his eyes to the quarter where the sound had been heard, suddenly saw coming down the slope of a hill several men clad in white like penitents. The fact was that the clouds had that year withheld their moisture from the earth, and in all the villages of the district they were organizing processions, rogations, and penances, imploring God to open the hands of His mercy and send the rain, and to this end the people of a village that was hard by were going in procession to a holy hermitage there was on one side of the valley. Don Quixote, when he saw the strange garb of the penitents, without reflecting how often he had seen it before, took it into his head that this was a case of adventure, and that it fell to him alone, as a knight-errant, to engage it, and he was all the more confirmed in this notion by the idea that an image draped in black they had with them was some illustrious lady that these villains and discourteous thieves were carrying off by force. As soon as this occurred to him, he ran with all speed to Rocinante, who was grazing at large, and, taking the bridle and the buckler from the saddle-bow, he had him bridled in an instant, and calling to Sancho for his sword, he mounted Rocinante, braced his buckler on his arm, and in a loud voice exclaimed to those who stood by, Now, noble company, ye shall see how important it is that there should be knights in the world professing knight-errantry. Now, I say, ye shall see by the deliverance of that worthy lady who is born captive there, whether knights-errant should be held in estimation. And, so saying, he brought his knees to bear on Rocinante, for he had no spurs, and at a full canter, for in all this voracious history 
We never read of Rocinante fairly galloping, set off to encounter the penitents, though the curate, the canon, and the barber ran to prevent him. But it was out of their power, nor did he even stop for the shouts of Sancho calling after him, Where are you going, Señor Don Quixote? What devils have possessed you to set you against our Catholic faith? Plague take me! Mind, that is a procession of penitents, and the lady they are carrying on that stand is the blessed image of the Immaculate Virgin. Take care what you are doing, Señor, for this time it may be safely said you don't know what you are about. Sancho labored in vain, for his master was so bent on coming to quarters with these sheeted figures, and releasing the lady in black, that he did not hear a word. And even had he heard, he would not have turned back if the king had ordered him. He came up with the procession, and reined in Rocinante, who was already anxious enough to slacken speed a little, and, in a hoarse, excited voice, he exclaimed, "'You who hide your faces, perhaps because you are not good subjects, pay attention!' and listen to what I am about to say to you. The first to halt were those who were carrying the image, and one of the four ecclesiastics who were chanting the liturgy, struck by the strange figure of Don Quixote, the leanness of Rocinante, and the other ludicrous peculiarities he observed, said in reply to him, Brother, if you have anything to say to us, Say it quickly, for these brethren are whipping themselves, and we cannot stop, nor is it reasonable we should stop to hear anything, unless, indeed, it is short enough to be said in two words. I will say it in one, and it is this, that at once, this very instant, ye release that fair lady, whose tears and sad aspect show plainly that ye are carrying her off against her will, and that ye have committed some scandalous outrage against her. And I, who was born into the world to redress all such wrongs, will not permit you to advance another step until you have restored to her the liberty she pines for and deserves. From these words all the hearers concluded that he must be a madman, and began to laugh heartily, and their laughter acted like gunpowder on Don Quixote's fury, for drawing his sword without another word, he made a rush at the stand. One of those who supported it, leaving the burden to his comrades, advanced to meet him, flourishing a forked stick he had for propping up the stand when resting, and with this he caught a mighty cut Don Quixote made at him that severed it in two. But, with the portion that remained in his hand, he dealt such a thwack on the shoulder of Don Quixote's sword-arm, which the buckler could not protect against the clownish assault, that poor Don Quixote came to the ground in a sad plight. Sancho Panza, who was coming on close behind, puffing and blowing, seeing him fall, cried out to his assailant not to strike him again, for he was a poor enchanted knight, who had never harmed any one all the days of his life. But what checked the clown was not Sancho's shouting, but seeing that Don Quixote did not stir hand or foot, and so, 
Fancying he had killed him, he hastily hitched up his tunic under his girdle, and took to his heels across the country like a deer. By this time all Don Quixote's companions had came up to where he lay. But the processionists, seeing them come running, and with them the officers of the Brotherhood with their crossbows, apprehended mischief, and clustering round the image, raised their hoods, and grasped their scourges, as the priests did their tapers, and awaited the attack, resolved to defend themselves, and even to take the offensive against their assailants if they could. Fortune, however, arranged the matter better than they expected, for all Sancho did was to fling himself on his master's body, raising over him the most doleful and laughable lamentation that ever was heard, for he believed he was dead. The curate was known to another curate, who walked in the procession, and their recognition of one another set at rest the apprehensions of both parties. The first then told the other in two words who Don Quixote was, and he and the whole troop of penitents went to see if the poor gentleman was dead, and heard Sancho Panza saying, with tears in his eyes, O flower of chivalry, that with one blow of a stick hast ended the course of thy well-spent life, O pride of thy race, honour and glory of all La Mancha, nay, of all the world, that for want of thee will be full of evildoers, no longer in fear of punishment for their misdeeds. O thou generous above all the Alexanders, since only eight months of service thou hast given me the best island the sea girds or surrounds. Humble with the proud, haughty with the humble, encounterer of dangers, endurer of outrages, enamoured without reason, imitator of the good, scourge of the wicked, enemy of the mean, in short, knight-errant, which is all that can be said. At the cries and moans of Sancho, Don Quixote came to himself, and the first word he said was, He who lives separated from you, sweetest Dulcinea, has greater miseries to endure than these. Aid me, my friend Sancho, to mount the enchanted cart, for I am not in a condition to press the saddle of Rocinante, as this shoulder is all knocked to pieces. That I will do with all my heart, senor, said Sancho, and let us return to our village with these gentlemen who seek our good, and there we will prepare for making another sally, which may turn out more profitable and creditable to us. Thou art right, Sancho, returned Don Quixote. It will be wise to let the malign influence of the stars which now prevails pass off. The canon, the curate, and the barber told him he would act very wisely in doing as he said, and so, highly amused at Sancho Panza's simplicities, they placed Don Quixote in the cart as before. The procession, once more, formed itself in order, and proceeded on its road. The goatherd took his leave of the party, and the officers of the Brotherhood declined to go any farther, and the curate paid them what was due to them. 
The canon begged the curate to let him know how Don Quixote did, whether he was cured of his madness or still suffered from it, and then begged leave to continue his journey. In short, they all separated and went their ways, leaving to themselves the curate and the barber, Don Quixote, Sancho Panza, and the good Rocinante, who regarded everything with as great resignation as his master. The carter yoked his oxen and made Don Quixote comfortable on a truss of hay, and, at his usual deliberate pace, took the road the curate directed, and, at the end of six days, they reached Don Quixote's village, and entered it about the middle of the day, which it so happened was a Sunday, and the people were all in the plaza, through which Don Quixote's cart passed. They all flocked to see what was in the cart, and when they recognized their townsmen, they were filled with amazement. And a boy ran off to bring the news to his housekeeper and his niece, that their master and uncle had come back, all lean and yellow, and stretched on a truss of hay, on an ox-cart. It was piteous to hear the cries the two good ladies raised, how they beat their breasts, and poured out fresh maledictions on those accursed books of chivalry, all which was renewed when they saw Don Quixote coming in at the gate. At the news of Don Quixote's arrival, Sancho Panza's wife came running, for she by this time knew that her husband had gone away with him as his squire, and on seeing Sancho, the first thing she asked him was if the ass was well. Sancho replied that he was, better than his master was. Thanks be to God, said she, for being so good to me. But now tell me, my friend, what have you made by your squirings? What gown have you brought me back? What shoes for our children? I bring nothing of that sort, wife, said Sancho, though I bring other things of more consequence and value. I am very glad of that, returned his wife. Show me these things of more consequence and value, my friend, for I want to see them to cheer my heart that has been so sad and heavy all these ages that you have been away. I will show them to you at home, wife, said Sancho. Be content for the present, for if it please God that we should again go on our travels in search of adventures, you will soon see me a count or governor of an island, and that not one of those everyday ones, but the best that is to be had. Heaven grant it, husband, said she, for indeed we have need of it. But tell me, what's this about islands, for I don't understand it? Honey is not for the mouth of the ass, returned Sancho. All in good time thou shalt see, wife, Nay, thou wilt be surprised to hear thyself called your ladyship by all thy vessels. What are you talking about, Sancho, with your ladyship's islands and vassals? returned Teresa Panza, for so Sancho's wife was called, though they were not relations, for in La Mancha it is customary for wives to take their husbands' surnames. Don't be in such a hurry to know all this, Teresa said Sancho. It is enough that I am telling you the truth, so shut your mouth. But I may tell you this much, by the way, 
that there is nothing more delightful in the world than to be a person of consideration, squire to a knight-errant, and a seeker of adventures. To be sure, most of those one finds uh, do not end as pleasantly as one could wish, for out of a hundred ninety-nine will turn out cross and contrary. I know it by experience, for out of some I came blanketed, and out of others belabored. Still, for all that, it is a fine thing to be on the lookout for what may happen, crossing mountains, searching woods, climbing rocks, visiting castles, putting up at inns, all at free quarters, and devil take the Maravedi de pay. While this conversation passed between Sancho Panza and his wife, Don Quixote's housekeeper and niece took him in and undressed him, and laid him in his old bed. He eyed them askance, and could not make out where he was. The curate charged his niece to be very careful to make her uncle comfortable, and to keep watch over him, lest he should make his escape from them again, telling her what they had been obliged to do to bring him home. On this the pair once more lifted up their voices, and renewed their maledictions upon the books of chivalry, and implored heaven to plunge the authors of such lies and nonsense into the midst of the bottomless pit. They were, in short, kept in anxiety and dread lest their uncle and master should give them the slip the moment he found himself somewhat better, and as they feared, so it fell out. But the author of this history, though he has devoted research and industry to the discovery of the deeds achieved by Don Quixote in his third sally, has been unable to obtain any information respecting them, at any rate derived from authentic documents. Tradition has merely preserved in the memory of La Mancha the fact that Don Quixote, the third time he sallied forth from his home, betook himself to Saragossa, where he was present at some famous jousts which came off in that city, and that he had adventures there worthy of his valour and high intelligence. Of his end and death he could learn no particulars, nor would he have ascertained it, or known of it, if good fortune had not produced an old physician for him, who had in his possession a leaden box, which, according to his account, had been discovered among the crumbling foundations of an ancient hermitage that was being rebuilt, in which box were found certain parchment manuscripts in Gothic character, but in Castilian verse, containing many of his achievements, and setting forth the beauty of Dulcinea, the form of Rocinante, the fidelity of Sancho Panza, and the burial of Don Quixote himself, together with sundry epitaphs and eulogies on his life and character. But all that could be read and deciphered were those which the trustworthy author of this new and unparalleled history here presents. And the said author asks of those that shall read it nothing in return for the vast toil which it has cost him in examining and searching the Manchegan archives in order to bring it to light save that they give him 
the same credit that people of sense give to the books of chivalry that pervade the world and are so popular. For with this he will consider himself amply paid and fully satisfied, and will be encouraged to seek out and produce other histories, if not as truthful, at least equal in invention, and not less entertaining. The first words written on the parchment found in the leaden box were these. The Accommoditions of Argamasilla, a village of La Mancha, on the life and death of Don Quixote of La Mancha, hoc scripturant monicongo, academician of Argamasilla, on the tomb of Don Quixote. Epitaph the scatterbrain that gave La Mancha more rich spoils than Jason's, who, a point so keen had to his wit, and happier far had been if his wit's weathercock a blunter bore, the arm renowned far as Gaeta's shore, Cathay, and all the lands that lie between, the muse discreet and terrible and mean, as ever wrote on brass in days of yore, he who surpassed the Amadises all, and who as not the Galaors accounted, supported by his love and gallantry, who made the Bellinises sing small, and sought renown on Rocinante mounted, here underneath this cold stone doth he lie. Paniaguado, academician of Argamasilla, in laudam Dulcinea del Toboso. Sonnet She, whose full features may be here descried, High-bosomed, with a bearing of disdain, Is Dulcinea, she for whom in vain The great Don Quixote of La Mancha sighed. For her, Toboso's queen, From side to side he traversed the grim Sierra, the Champagne of Aranjuez, and Montiel's famous plain, on Rocinante oft a weary ride. Malignant planets' cruel destiny pursued them both, the fair Manchegan dame, and the unconquered star of chivalry. Nor youth nor beauty saved her from the claim of death. He paid love's bitter penalty, and left the marble. To preserve his name. Capriccioso, a most acute academician of Argamasilla, in praise of Rocinante, steed of Don Quixote of La Mancha. Sonnet On that proud throne of diamantine sheen, which the blood-reeking feet of Mars degrade, the mad Manchigan's banner now hath been by him in all its bravery displayed. There hath he hung his arms and trenchant blade, wherewith, achieving deeds till now unseen, he slays, lays low, cleaves, hews. But art hath made a novel style for our new paladin. If Amadis be the proud boast of Gaul, if by his progeny the fame of Greece through all the regions of the earth be spread, Great Quixote, crowned in grim Bayona's hall, 
Today exalts La Mancha over these, And above Greece or Gaul she holds her head. Nor ends his glory here, for his good steed Doth Briador and Bayard far exceed, As meddled steeds compared with Rocinante, The reputation they have won is scanty. Burlador, Academician of Argamasilla, on Sancho Panza. Sonnet. The worthy Sancho Panza here you see. A great soul once was in that body small. Nor was there squire upon this earthly ball so plain and simple, or of guile so free. Within an ace of being count was he, and would have been but for the spite and gall of this vile age, mean and illiberal, that cannot even let a donkey be. For, mounted on an ass, excuse the word, by Rocinante's side this gentle squire was wont his wandering master to attend. The elusive hopes that lure the common herd with promises of ease, the heart's desire, in shadows, dreams, and smoke, ye always end. Cachi Diablo, Academician of Argamasilla on the Tomb of Don Quixote, Epitaph The night lies here below, ill-errant and bruised sore, whom Rocinante bore in his wanderings to and fro. By the side of the night is laid stolid man Sancho, too, than whom a squire more true was not in the esquire trade. To Quitoc, Academician of Argamasilla, on the tomb of Dulcinea del Toboso. Epitaph Here Dulcinea lies. Plump was she and robust. Now she is ashes and dust. The end of all flesh that dies. A lady of high degree, with the port of a lofty dame, and the great Don Quixote's flame, and the pride of her village was she. These were all the verses that could be deciphered. The rest, the writing being worm-eaten, were handed over to one of the academicians, to make out their meaning conjecturally. We have been informed that, at the cost of many sleepless nights, and much toil, he has succeeded, and that he means to publish them, in hopes of Don Quixote's third sally. Force altro cantera, con miglior plectro. The conclusion of Part 18, Chapters 51 and 52, and The End of Don Quixote, Volume 1, by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra, translated by John Ormsby, read by Dennis Sayers for LibriVox in Modesto, California, Spring 2006.